0: there Romans chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 reading all the way through let's begin I am speaking the truth in Christ I'm not lying my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom. And become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Father, we ask that you would help us to see these words with clarity and receive what it is that you have to say to us through them. Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts to see the glory of your salvation and to submit to you that you would do away with pride and cause us to be grateful for your mercy in Jesus name amen as most of you know I often open up with a story but today we're going to dive in we've got a lot of text to cover Uh, in the passage we read this morning we're not just reading theoretical explanations about God's sovereignty or election this is one of the most challenging passages in any study of the the book of Romans because it begins to speak about God's choices you know God makes choices in time and he has exercised those choices and we can observe them as he's revealed in his word And in this passage that we read this morning, we're not just reading, though, about God sort of theoretically, theologically talking about choices regarding sovereignty or the term here that is used in the passage, election. We're actually reading something a bit different than that. We're reading a pastoral argument that the Apostle Paul is writing to Gentile churches in Rome intended for this church to help them address what was to them a really important problem in their midst. This church in Rome was made up of primarily a large group of Gentiles who were in the place of cultural power at the time and a smaller group of Jewish background believers. The Jewish Christians in the church at Rome, among the people, wanted to make the practices of the church more Jewish. They wanted it to look more like the Old Testament legal code and pattern what they did after that. But the Gentile Christians, they didn't feel the necessity to do so. And honestly, as we've been studying, Paul affirmed that that in this letter that the Gentiles were, in fact, correct. Paul's emphasis, as we've read, was on conformity to the image of Christ rather than strict following of the Old Testament Mosaic laws. Conformity to the image of Christ and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit that Romans 8 talked so much about. And he said that this spirit united the church, although it was made up of two very different groups of people culturally, and it made that church into one family of Jews and Gentiles who found their commonality and their unity through faith in Jesus Christ. That both Jews and Gentiles could only be saved and find themselves right with God because of what Jesus had done. This was Paul's solution to their division. So what is this chapter all about? How, is, how does this chapter fit in? It's, to some people, they felt like it's a sort of a theological aside. But actually, it's really a practical argument into that problem. And we're going to look at how that plays out. But, but here's what was going on. This Jewish group of background believers that grew up Jewish culturally in Rome... They had a problem that they needed addressed, and this is the chapter where Paul addresses it. And here's the problem. I'm going to say it in three different ways. It's sort of posed as a question. The Jewish uh, remnant in the church was asking a question like this. How can a salvation that God promised would come through the Jewish people result in a church that is mainly Gentiles? Good question, right? He's asking them that question. He's saying, "You know, how can a gospel that God said would come through the Jewish people result in a church that would be mainly Gentiles in Rome with a remnant of Jewish people? I'll present their argument as a statement that this chapter 9 intends to answer. To put it plainly, if so many of our Jewish family rejects this gospel, it doesn't seem like it can be the salvation that God promised in the Old Testament. This is what they're concerned about. Put as an indictment Against God in the passage, it sounds a bit like this. It's wrong of God to sovereignly harden Jewish hearts and have the gospel flourish among the Gentiles. You see, they were dealing with their present situation. They're looking around and saying, this Messiah that had been promised to come through the people of Israel is being received mainly by the Gentiles while many Jewish people in hardness have turned away from God such that we have a primarily Jewish Primarily Gentile church in Rome with a remnant of Jewish people. This is the question that is in the background as Paul is writing chapter 9 to answer what God has done in his saving work through Jesus Christ. See, the Roman church is dealing with a question of God's sovereignty and what he's done to save people. That's That's what they're dealing with. What does God owe us? We deal with that question. But they're not dealing with it theoretically, like how does God pan this out? What is God, when did God decide this and who, who gets in? And they're not dealing with it theoretically. They're dealing with it practically right in their midst. Based on what they're seeing happen around them as many Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ and many Jewish people are rejecting Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Prompting the question, is this some sort of plan B that God has cooked up? Well, here in this passage, Paul defends God. Chapter 9 is what, what theologians traditionally call a theodicy. A theodicy is a defense of God's works. A defense of what we can see that God has done. And Paul is defending God. He's saying, he's saying let's have a look at whether what God is doing right now as the gospel is flourishing among the Gentiles and Jewish hearts are hardened. Whether that is just for God to allow that to happen and so he's looking at that and so here in this passage paul defends god in his saving work from mischaracterization and by doing so i think if you look closely and we're going to see this he shows us five things about god's saving plan that undermine pride and glorify god for his grace And so the way we benefit is we get to look in on this conversation that is happening in this church and how Paul answers them. And we get to, from that, we get to learn about the glory of God's saving plan, how it undermines pride and glorifies God for his grace. And so we're going to see those five things in the text. I want to stay really close to the text today because I think this, this text particularly challenges us to understand salvation from God's perspective. We are always tempted to make the gospel about us. One of the things we face is we want to tailor God to our image rather than submit ourselves to what God has revealed about his saving work. And here we see a God who is gloriously above in his grace. So five things about God's saving that undermine pride and glorify God for His grace. The first one we see in verses 1 through 5, we see that God's work of salvation hinges on Christ. God's work of salvation hinges on Christ. Now, as Paul begins to address the topic, he wisely reminds the reader, those who would have heard this read in Rome, that he himself is Jewish, right? That's how he begins. He reminds them of his deep love for his own heritage. He says it's a unique heritage that has not simply been abandoned by God, but fulfilled. You see, the people of Israel, he describes them in the first couple verses as his kinsmen. And he says he would go so far as to be cut off himself for Christ to be revealed in them, for them to experience this saving work. Now, I think this is a bit of rhetorical hyperbole, but it's Paul's way of saying, I don't lack a love for my fellow Israelite people. I, would, I want them to see this and understand it. If possible, me being cut off would bring them to see it. I would do it. But as he seeks to affirm their special place in God's saving plan as a people, he walks through the Old Testament and highlights how God has worked through them specially to bring about this saving work you'll notice it in the beginning of chapter 9 he says to them belongs verse 4 and he lists the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race belongs the christ he says they are the ones who have been adopted in a special way by god for this, to, to be his family They saw his glory in special ways. They received the promised covenants, the law, the designs of worship in the Old Testament temple and the promise of God's salvation. The patriarchs of the faith that we read about and and celebrate and, and ponder are their ancestors. He's talking about their great privilege. But notice what he ultimately does. Ultimately, Paul celebrates that it's from their race, According to the flesh, he says, that Christ has come. You see how he turns the attention in verse 5 away from their glory as a people to the fulfillment, the glory of God, that it's through them that Christ has arrived. Now, ultimately, Paul is celebrating that. He's saying it's a glorious heritage, but I want you to see that Paul believes this Jewish heritage has a point. It has a purpose that they aren't recognizing. Notice what he says. That point isn't about Israel, it's about Christ. That point's not about Israel, it's about Christ. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come through the Jewish people by the flesh. He's not just another piece of the puzzle. This is what he's wanting them to see. He's not just another piece of the puzzle in this long collection here. He is, as he describes, God over all and blessed forever, amen. So in that long list, Jesus is the point. In the long history of the people of Israel, Jesus is the climax. He is the goal, not just a part of the series. Jesus Christ is God himself who has come to rescue mankind from their sin. And he is the hinge on which, which salvation and hope for us turns in a sense as he starts he says this isn't about israel it's about god god who has come in the full person of jesus he alone is blessed forever amen which here means full stop it's about jesus So so the first thing we need to see is God's sovereignty and salvation reminds us that we're not at the center of the universe. Our story is not the central story. The story is about God and his plan to glorify Jesus by saving a people for himself. Jesus is the hinge. So that's the first thing we see. God's work of salvation hinges on Christ. The second thing we see if we follow closely in this passage is that God's work of salvation is a matter of grace. Now, I don't know if you've thought deeply about how it is we come into a relationship with God, but the Bible makes a contrast between salvation being about grace and salvation being according to works or merit. Here, grace means unmerited, undeserved favor. That God only saves people by bestowing favor on people who don't rightfully deserve it. Like salvation, a relationship with God doesn't come to people who have earned it, who have cleaned themselves up well enough, who have been wise enough to make the right choices. It comes to those who receive it as an undeserved gift from God. In the text, in this next section, verses six through 13, we see this being played out. In this next section of verses, Paul starts to formally address the argument that we began with with his reply. At the heart is this concern that somehow the makeup of the Roman church and the mission to the Gentiles means that the word of God to Israel has failed. His promises to Israel has failed. Paul starts to show us that God has been working by grace in his choices from the very beginning. It's really about grace. The way in which God has worked out his saving plan historically has been purposely to show that it's all undeserved favor from beginning to end. That's what grace means. So how does he do that? Well, he says this isn't a new thing. This is where the story actually begins. From the very beginning, it was a matter of God showing favor to people who didn't deserve it. So here, in this passage, that means that God has shown from the beginning that the work of his salvation has never followed ethnic lines. You see, what they're saying is, Hey, we're Israel. We were born of the right people. Therefore, God has to shower his blessing on us and focus on us. And he says, wait a minute. God's favor has never been delivered along ethnic lines. It's not something we primarily get by birthright. Here's the idea. From the beginning, God has chosen to pass his promises of salvation by his own choosing and design, and entirely apart from any perceived merit or birthright. This is what these verses show us. How do we see it? Well, here in verses 6 through 13, he starts by talking about God's choices from the beginning. God looks out at a sinful world and he calls Abraham. If you remember that story, he calls Abraham to come out of the idolatry of his people and he says, I, I, out of, he doesn't choose Abraham because Abraham is particularly good. He simply decides that through Abraham, he is going to bring salvation. Through one born as his seed, through one of his future descendants, God is going to bring salvation. Not because Abraham merited it, but just because God chose to do it that way. You see, God freely chose Abraham from out of all the wickedness of his own people and made a promise that through his seed, God would return his blessings to people of every nation, it says in Genesis 12. He would bless Abraham, and then through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. But in these verses, what he wants to highlight is that although Abraham had more than one son, the inheritance of that promise only came through Isaac. So Abraham had more than one son, but he says, it wasn't Abraham's sons according to the flesh that received the promise, but the one whom God chose to pass it through, particularly Isaac. So this is, think about what's happening. There's an origin story going on here. We all love origin stories, Marvel movies, right? Always do this. You know, it's the best way to, to write a sequel to a popular movie is to write an origin story. What he's going back and said, how did you become Israel at all? Well, the first thing is, I chose Abraham out of nothing. The second thing is, out of all of Abraham's sons, I chose your forefather Isaac to be the son of promise. And then he looks at that and he says, out of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, I chose Jacob who wasn't the one who deserved the birthright but was the younger one and I chose to to put my blessing on him and to promise that through him my promised salvation would come and he is, Jacob becomes Israel. That becomes his name. And so all of them become descendants not because of God's having to follow some sort of ethnic line but because he chose to go against what was the cultural expectation of the time and he blessed the younger rather than the older one. And so that's what's going on here. But notice in verse 8, he wants us to see why this is significant. He says in verse 8 that God did all this because this means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, meaning it's not where we're born or who we're born to that makes us children of God, but he says that the children of promise are counted as his offspring. Listen, God doesn't play by your ethnic rules. He doesn't distribute his promises primarily by birth, is what he says here. And he's saying this to the Jewish audience, arguing their case. Well, if that isn't enough, he pushes the argument further, like I said, by showing God's choice to continue his saving promise through Jacob rather than Esau. You know, if you don't know the backstory of that, from before these two twins were born, it was the younger whom God had chosen to inherit the blessing from Isaac and not the older. And then we see that play out in the decisions of their lives. So the children of Jacob become Israel not by birth order, but by God's design. And the descendants of Is. Is- This is what is true in the Old Testament. The descendants of Esau could believe God's promises by faith, but they were not centered in the plan of God's salvation. They weren't the focus of it. This is what this choosing is about. God chose Jacob for that. Now, here's a way of talking about that choice. It quotes a passage from Malachi that is incredibly uncomfortable to us, so let's address it. It quotes a passage from Malachi that says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Well, we're uncomfortable with that language when it comes to God's choosing. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let's remember that our modern conceptions of love and hate are not always a one-to-one correspondence for a language that is 3,000 years old, that we bring baggage culturally to how we think about what's going on with those terms. It was common in Old Testament times, in ancient times, to in covenant language of choosing and preference to use the terms love and hate, as to choose one and to turn from another. And so it was common to do that, such that if we rewind into the Hebrew language that's being quoted here in the book of Malachi, and we find out that this was actually like a Hebrew uh, idiom. It was a way of speaking about choosing one thing over another in fact we see Jesus do this in the in his own idiom he says that discipleship to him following him is so radical that it looks like that 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 the choosing of Jesus over all other things looks like loving God loving Christ and hating our family that if it has to come down to a choice we would we would cling to Christ if it means losing everything else and Jesus used love and hate in that way He's not talking about actively seeking someone's destruction or particularly the emotional response, but this Hebrew idiom of choosing and not choosing, of choosing to show this preferential blessing that he shows on Jacob. And so the result of that choice is Jacob inherits the blessing of God to be the father of the nation of Israel through whom God's salvation centers and is delivers and would come. And so the Jewish people have been God's focus, not simply by natural birth or some special quality in them, but by God's undeserved favor on Jacob. And so he says, you are God's people because God has freely determined to make you that. Not because you merited it, not because you were better, not because he found the greatest, but just simply because he set his love on you. Paul says God acted this way So that he, Paul is interpreting this theologically for us and he says God acted this way so that it might be clear that God's salvation is not because of works. And this is what he says the point is. So that we would know God's salvation is not because of works, but him who calls. So that we would conclude if we find ourselves as those who've come and we've trusted God for mercy, that we would conclude that there wasn't anything special about us. But there's something special about God's mercy that we have received. God shows mercy to us, but we need to see that God is simply merciful and we haven't merited it. This is what this passage shows us. So we see the second thing is that God's work of salvation is a matter of grace in verses 6 through 13. Then we move on to verses 14 through 26 in this passage. Let's look at those closely. And we discover that God's work of salvation is founded on mercy. Now, many times we just sort of take grace and mercy. We throw them in a, in a bucket and say, Lord, thank you, you know, in our prayers for your grace and mercy, right? And we just sort of, that just means good things that we think we don't deserve. But, but here, grace and mercy are at play in the passage technically, grace is God's choosing to show undeserved, unmerited favor, and mercy here in this passage is God's choice not to give us the punishment and justice that our sins deserve. Now, let me show you why that's important. Now, here we are at the heart of the challenges, With all this talk of God making choices about how he would save people and who he'd bring the promise through and who he'd use in his plans and promises, the question naturally arises, isn't that unfair? I don't like this view. I don't like this portrayal. Isn't it unjust for God to act this way? Well, the answer Paul gives to these Jewish people who feel like they've been moved out of the center of God's plan in some way as the gospel is proclaimed among the Gentiles is that salvation is a matter of mercy, not justice. Salvation is a matter of mercy, not justice. You see, as an appeal to the Jewish readers and to stay rooted in the teaching of the Old Testament, he wants to show this is true by quoting Exodus 33. So if you're looking in your text now, we look and we look at verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the best way to understand God's delivery of salvation is in terms of mercy. Now, what does that mean? Well, we tend to think in terms of justice. We love fairness, right? We love to talk about it. In fact, that is one of our dominating ideas culturally, even. As Westerners, we're wrapped up in this idea of justice. We tend to think of, in terms of justice, And and here what we see is God's salvation does not fall below the line of justice and disregard what is right. But it rises above justice to show mercy to the undeserving. Any salvation at all doesn't fall below justice. God doesn't ignore his justice. He actually rises above justice to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. We can never understand, listen, you're never going to understand God's work and God's decisions or the matters of God's will in the world or our lives until we understand that his dealings with us are on the basis of mercy and not justice. Until we realize if we ask for justice, we would get punishment and condemnation. Mercy, by definition, means to not give someone what their sinful or wrong actions rightly deserve. God's work of salvation does not start with innocent people. This is what he wants us to see. The starting point, the lump of clay that we're going to look at here in a second, isn't a lump of clay of innocent people. It starts with those who have turned their back on God, who have spurned God's goodness and his creative gift and have instead decided to walk in their own ways. God's salvation begins with people who have rightly forfeited it. And God has shown mercy and compassion on his people it starts with us as a people who've rejected god and his ways and sinned against him our sins rightly deserve the bible teaches they rightly deserve god's wrath and justice his salvation is an act of bestowing mercy which also means the way he is that that, which this also means that him doing that isn't unjust when he does not show mercy God's work towards sinful people does not fall below the line of justice. Now, the example given to illustrate this further in the text is another one that's important in Israel's history. It's God's decision to harden Pharaoh in his sin in relation to Israel during the Exodus. Now, if you know the background of this, we see that Pharaoh had oppressed them. He was wicked. And God determines to save Israel, but as a way of miraculously showing his power, he doesn't just save Israel and lead them out. He destroys the one who has been wicked against him and against them. Now, he starts with someone in Pharaoh who is already dead set on wickedness, and he plays that out. He gives Pharaoh over to his own desires, and then he uses that to display his power, his judgment his justice, if we decide to turn from him. But he also simultaneously uses it to to bring the people of Israel out into his abundance and his promise. And so we see this going on, and we see both mercy being shown on Israel and this hardening of justice coming to Pharaoh. And, and, and for the people of Israel, that particular story and that decision of God to show mercy and to harden another is perfectly fine with them because they were on the side of benefiting from it. But now as they're looking, in this time, in this church, they're saying, are we on the other side? Is somehow our hardness of heart being held there by God so that the gospel would race to the Gentiles? And they're asking that question. But the first thing Paul wants to show them is that it was perfectly just for God to harden Pharaoh in his sin. So Paul summarizes this by saying, God is right to show mercy on whom he wills and to harden those he wills at any time. Given moment, I just want to st- do a little pastoral aside here. I want you to notice that he doesn't say that he makes anyone sin. That's not what the passage says. He says that our starting place in God's actions is, is He coming to a sinful people and choosing to harden and bring justice to one wicked person and to show mercy to others who have sinned against him. And so he's not. Say- this says nothing about God making or forcing sin on Pharaoh, but the recognition that God can rightly show justice in giving us over to our wrongful desires and harden us in those. Now, if you've been paying attention to Romans or you've been here for this whole series, we know that Romans 1 actually teaches us this. Part of God's judgment on the world is that we've sort of been relinquished to our own bad decisions and our own rebellion against God. And much of the heartache that sin produces happens in a world where God has allowed us to continue in our own sin and experience the negative consequences. But he summarizes it here. God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy and hardened those he hardens. Why is that just? Well, because we've forfeited God's blessing in exchange for our sin. And he doesn't owe us any good thing. So the offer of salvation is an act of mercy through Christ. And if we understand it any other way, we will distort it and question God. Now, he's not done with this idea yet. We've made it through verse 18, but he presses further in verses 19 through 24 about mercy. Here's why. This group of Jewish Christians that he's in dialogue with now find themselves observably bothered by the sense that Israel has been hardened to the gospel at least by their observation. And Paul wants them to see that what God is doing is not unjust now as the gospel flourishes among the Gentiles as it pertains to those who have rejected Christ. He puts the question in their mouth in verse 19. If it's all a matter of God's will, then how can he find fault? Paul answers that question by continuing to focus on the meaning of mercy. First, he says, we're at God's mercy and God has the right over us. Now he works by analogy, he isn't particularly just saying it's exactly like this clay and potter thing, but, but the analogy is that we have a lump there that God is the one who determines our lives, that we're not really in a position, and this is what it's meant to, to communicate, you know, we really don't get God if we believe that our feeble, weak opinions, somehow he is bound to. It's a foolish idea that we would come to God and demand that he adapt to our way of thinking. I mean, we just have to look around our world and say, praise God he doesn't live with the kind of justice we live with. Praise God that he doesn't work out the the kind of wisdom into the world that we do as a culture in society. We're living in perilous, difficult times where we can see the fruit of uh, of our wickedness on display week after week in ways that are just crippling, even as we come in this week to feel the burden of a world under sin. And it's not just out there, it's in here. It's not just other people, it's our own sin. And we see that who are we to be able to come with all of our foolishness and weakness and say, God, we're going to hold you to account. He says, no, you've got it backwards. He's the creator. You might want to ask him what he's up to. You might want to plead for mercy from a God who overwhelmingly gives mercy to those who call upon him. So he's speaking this way to them. We see first he says we're at God's mercy and God has right over us. Second, though, he says that we're all part of the same lump. The way he uses this idea in verse 21 about the lump, it's important here because the Jewish people at that time wanted to see themselves as approved or moral in some special way by God. But he wouldn't allow them to do that. But they've also been wicked towards God. In fact, uh, if you read the history of the Old Testament, it reveals that the Israelites engaged in idolatry, rejection of God, uh, child sacrifice like the nations around them, all sorts of wicked abominations that, that, that would make us tremble to even think about them. That would make us blush if we listed out the ways in which Israel had turned from God into their own wickedness. So how he chooses to respond to our sin is a matter of his own justice. They're not in a place of righteousness to argue that God owes them any more than Pharaoh was owed. So we see that the second he says that we're all part of the same lump. And third, he says that God has suffered long with the wicked in order to show mercy in his saving work. He says, get it from God's perspective. We are the sinners, and God is the one who has had to endure with our sin and our wickedness, the wickedness of the world, as he's worked out his saving plan. You see, we often want to think about it in our own perspective. And to be honest, from our own perspective, we're innocent and we've done great all along. But listen, there is no salvation that doesn't begin with us humbling ourselves and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, God's work of salvation is founded on mercy. Therefore, the way in which he exercises dispersing that, proclaiming that, and gathering a people through the gospel is of his own plan and his own right. So then we see the fourth thing in verses 25 through 31. Paul wants to show them that God's work of salvation has fulfilled his word. Verses 25 through 31, he then turns to quoting some Old Testament passages. And again, he's, in these verses, Paul is bringing his argument home. Since salvation is an act of mercy, then God's choice of how he shows mercy and whom he hardens at any given time to show his justice is entirely up to him. Particularly in the moment Paul is speaking, uh, God has not been, he's, Paul is wanting to say, God has not been unjust to the people of Israel. He has endured them with much patience. This is what he's saying. Just like the Gentiles, he has endured them with much patience. And in verses 25 through 31, Paul quotes the Old Testament to say, the current ways in which the gospel of Jesus was advancing among the Gentiles in Rome, and only a remnant of the Jewish people are turning to him, is is actually not only just, but what the prophets described would happen because of Israel's wickedness. In Hosea, he quotes from that, that's 25, in 26 the prophet hosea says to the people of israel the people of israel who believe that they will always be able to demand special privilege from god because they're his people he says god has a plan that goes even beyond them he describes it this way he said there's a time coming when those who were not my people i will call my people and her who was not beloved i will call beloved that God can gather a people from beyond just ethnic Israel and it's his right to do so. And he actually says, because of your wickedness, God is going to do this. He's going to gather a people who weren't described as his people. And they, by faith in Jesus, he's going to make them his people. And he's going to do that. And, and he goes on in and, and, uh, verse 26. And then the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. In Dumfries. They'll be called sons of the living God by faith. As a people who had no claim on God's historical works of salvation, his promise by any ethnicity through faith in Christ because of what Jesus has accomplished and no no right of our own, no merit of ours, God makes us his people in Jesus. This is what Paul's quoting, but then he takes it further. He says in Isaiah, he says, Isaiah rightly predicted that although Israel rejected God, his mercy to them would be to save a remnant. Verse 27, and that if God had not been merciful to save a remnant, that they would have rightfully become like Sodom and Gomorrah. That, they should, that these, these Jewish Christians should praise God for his mercy rather than questioning him as unjust. Verse 30 brings this idea to a conclusion. It says this. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. Yes, we should say that. This is what he means. Absolutely. And that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Absolutely. And if they insist on that law being the center of their hope, they will stumble, he says, over the stumbling stone of Jesus Christ. Because Christ came to save sinners, not the successful. This is his argument. That... God's work of salvation is actually fulfilling exactly what the prophet's word had said in the Old Testament, and they should recognize this is what God is doing. Well, all of that ultimately is to show us the last thing, but number five, that God's work of salvation then invites us to faith. It invites us to trust in God, not ourselves. It invites us to trust in God, not our heritage. It invites us to trust in God and not our family or our practices or the place we show up to church. It invites us to trust that only through faith in Jesus do we find any righteousness. Do we have any hope of a right relationship with God? And the miracle of salvation is that God invites us through faith to enjoy the riches of his blessing. And that if you're here today and you simply by faith turn to Jesus Christ, not because of works that you have done, not because you ended up in the right family, not because of any other reason but God's kindness, He's drawn you into this place so that you could hear that no matter how dark and deep are your sins, that His grace is enough, that His mercy extends over the deepest sinner. And they can be counted His children today, not because they've improved themselves, but because they've said, in Christ alone, I find my hope. God's work of salvation invites us to faith. 32 and 33 show us this. All of this talk of sovereignty and choice was not, for Paul, a way to say it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you respond. But to say that every person, Jew and Gentile, who will put their faith in Christ will be saved. And they will not be ashamed that they trusted in Jesus Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is God's saving work, his saving plan to humble us and to call us into the riches of faith. If we try to make God's salvation, listen, if we try to make God's salvation about anything other than God's grace and mercy, we will stumble over Jesus. You won't really like Jesus if it's about you proving you're better, proving you're wiser, you won't like Jesus. Jesus is the stumbling block for pride, whether it's Jewish pride or Gentile 21st century pride. He's a stumbling block to those who want to boast in their own strength, their own hope, their own wisdom, their own righteousness, their own record. Because verse 33 says, it was written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Well, that's odd. He's talking about Jesus here. He's saying the foundation stone that I'm laying is one that you will stumble over if you bring your pride of ethnicity, of culture, of success, of place, of wisdom. You will stumble Over the foundation that I'm building my kingdom on. You want to be a part of God's kingdom? You come here and and, and look what it says at the end. But whoever believes in him. Not whoever does things, right? Not whoever is smarter or wiser or was born in the right family. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is the place of our faith where we will never be ashamed that we entrusted ourselves to him and counted him to be our righteousness and hope. If you've placed your hope in any of the other things that are being disassembled through these words, you've misplaced your hope. But if you have put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, because you know in you there's nothing good to merit God's kindness, but God is a merciful God, then you have your hope placed in the right place in Christ. And you can celebrate. Will you trust Him? Or will you stumble over Him as you seek to justify yourself? I ask you to bow your heads. We transition at a time. Sharing in the Lord's Supper. Lord, we give you Praise. For your kindness to us. Lord we recognize. That we are undeserving sinners. Who you've shown grace to. And Lord even now. Lord I believe you're extending. Your hand of grace to some. Here today who walked in. Lord. And believed that they were good enough. Who would answer. And say that they're. Good enough people for you to. Accept them. But today you're wanting to disassemble their pride, and help them to see that they're sinners. But you have provided in Christ for them to be your people, to be your children, to be forgiven. Lord, even right now, would you stir up faith in hearts that need to respond today to you. Lord, we ask for your kindness to continue to reveal your truth to us, that your spirit would humble us today and for those who have trusted by faith in the Lord Jesus, that they would celebrate you for your goodness and undeserved mercy to them. Lord, would you lift our hearts up in worship to a glorious God who is above all things. Lord, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to.